Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. Today, I have a special guest on the show today, Monica. She's a listener, and she emailed me a few months ago, and we chatted over email, and I invited her on the show to ask the questions that she was asking over email so that the listeners might benefit from the questions and the answers. And I also think she might have some things to offer the listeners as well because she has some interesting experiences in some fields that might be interesting to you. So welcome to the show, Monica. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> Good. So tell us a little, a little bit about yourself. I'm a homeschooled teen in Chicago, and I grew up in a family that uses NVC, nonviolent communication, um, through my mom mainly, who started the whole process and wanted to create an environment in our home that was very safe and open and expressive. And she pretty much taught us by example. She didn't force anything into our pool of tools to use for expression. And about seven years ago, we came here to Seattle to participate in a family camp where we could do trainings and workshops for both parents and adults. And that was a very enriching environment, community that we experienced there. And we've just come back every single year since then. <laughs> so your mom had heard about or been exposed to nonviolent communication? Communication, yeah and had been using that in your home in mm -hmm. her communication with you and teaching you how to communicate mm -hmm. in a nonviolent way. Yeah. And then you started coming out to Seattle or Vashon Island, which is yeah. near, near Seattle. Is, is Vashon Island a part of Seattle? You know, I'm not sure if I don't it's think considered it is. Seattle. I don't th it might be, actually. But anyway, it's very different from Seattle. It's very rural feeling. Yes. And you're either an islander or you're a non-islander. Yeah. <laughs> and they have a camp there, apparently, where some people teach nonviolent communication mm -hmm. to children and parents. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people find it beneficial, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you're here in Seattle to do that this summer as you have in previous summers. Yes. How's that going so far? It's good. It starts on Saturday. Okay. And, um, Are you getting all your violent communication out of the way? <laughs> um, not really. You know, nonviolent is kind of, I don't know, it has a negative pull for me too. So I refer to compassionate communication a lot lately. Mm. Because nonviolent, those are both negatives before the positive communication. So I've started saying compassionate communication. Like an example would be, I feel really upset because you're making me do this, where that's invoking a lot of blame and judgment and um, the street becomes one way and that creates a conflict. Mm -hmm. So compassionate communication is a lot of just one-sided expression and allowing the other person to hear that and react and share how that affects them. So it's a lot of connecting with your feelings, whether you're feeling sad or uh, disappointed, disheartened, discouraged, distant. You know, those are very kind of cool, negative feelings. So instead of saying, like, I hate you, Mom, because you're making me do homework when I'd rather be playing video games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I think in that kind of a situation, the homework doer might feel discouraged or you know unenthusiastic uninspired to do homework so having some space or just you know a safe space to reconnect with that inspiration hmm. having that be heard 
too. Yeah. Do you have siblings? I have a little sister, yeah. Does she communicate as well as you do? Probably better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's grown up, you know, In within that. it. And I had about nine years beforehand where I didn't have that feelings and needs vocabulary. So, But huh. she's she's fantastic at it. Well, that's great. I, I sometimes wonder if our society and culture and our parenting practices involved more things along these lines, what would happen? Mm. And it seems like in your case with you and your sister, it has a really positive effect. I mean, am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Uh, we're six and a half years apart, so we've had our differences in age. Sometimes that creates conflict between us because it's because we're at such different stages in our lives that we're going through very different things. And being able to connect with my feelings and what I'm needing and expressing that to her is super helpful because there are a lot of times where she does want to connect with me and be in my space. And there are times where I feel more distant and like enwrapped in work and things like that. It's very sweet, too. It's very tender to be able to hear that she is wanting connection and she's wanting, you know, someone just to be there for her other than, like, my mom. And it's really kind of sweet and special for her to come to me with that, you know, to say, hey, you're the person I kind of look up to and I want you to be really a staple in my life and I want us to talk and um, she's well beyond her years, too. She's 11 and uh, already way past where I was at that point. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. So instead of saying, let's play a game or bothering you to engage with you. Yeah. You never play with me. Right. And then you saying, get out of my room. You're always bothering me. <laughs> and then she runs away crying yeah. and says, you know. That happens very rarely. <laughs> Monica's mean. And your mom has says, you know, stop being mean. You're, you know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, this is like a very common dynamic in families. Instead mm -hmm. of that, she comes to you and says something like, I really like connecting with you because you're my older sister and I miss us connecting or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And that can inspire you to actually respond in a way that she wants and yeah. might be gratifying to you rather than little sister coming in and messing with your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is really common, you know, like uh, sure. younger siblings as a way of trying to connect. Well, often it, when they can't get what they want, they'll often just start bothering their older siblings just because they want some interaction. You know, they're being ignored. So one way to not be ignored is to bother the older sibling. And then, mm -hmm. then you're in a fight, right? Right. <laughs> so yeah. it sounds like your sister's benefited from learning the skills and philosophies around compassionate communication. Mm -hmm. It's good. Yeah. So what questions do you have for me? Okay, so I wrote these all up on the bus while I was here. I had them all on my phone. Because I'm really interested in going into becoming, like taking training and getting educated in the whole therapy world, these were a couple of questions that came up. Um, for you as a therapist, like what drew you to that line of work? People ask me that sometimes, and it's a, it's a tough question to answer because it has to do with inspiration and the meaning of life to me, but essentially it brought together a lot of different interests into a job. I've always been really interested in talking to people. I've always been interested in thinking about things. <laughs> I've always been interested in how people work 
and I've always been interested in wanting to help society in whatever way I can. And so the field of psychotherapy and psychology really brings all those things together. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I literally get paid to think sometimes. <laughs> and that, that's, that's great. I mean, how many jobs are like that, you know? Yeah. I, I get paid to talk to people, <laughs> which is also great. So, you know, in a nutshell, that's what drew me to the profession. Hmm. Cool. All right. And then what was the training process like? I mean, you went to... Antioch right here mm-hmm. in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who goes to Antioch in Ohio. Okay. I understand it's a different kind of learning environment and I'm curious as to what that whole process was like. Was it challenging for you? Was it you know in a positive way or a negative way? How was it for you? Yeah. Well, after high school, I went to the University of Washington and received a a business degree because I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point in my life and I didn't want to get a degree in comparative literature so I decided to get something applicable that I thought might be used mm-hmm. and I did use it but then you know at the age of 24 I decided to become a therapist and I went to Antioch uh, in the mid 90s and got my master's in psychology to practice as a therapist and it was um challenging for me because I had grown up in the standard schooling environment Mm -hmm. and the University of Washington is certainly very old school in terms of the way they teach large lecture. I mean, my my psychology 101 course, for instance, had a thousand people in it. So, you know, it's very lecture-based, test-based, I don't know if I ever talked to one of my professors. I think in the business school, I might have talked to one or two, but it wasn't that kind of situation, I guess. There wasn't a lot of discussion. I certainly didn't write very much. A lot of tests. So Mm -hmm. I go to Antioch, and the classes are like, you know, 10 people, and I'm way the youngest person in class. Most people are in, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. And lots of discussion, and the teacher sits down with us and talks to us. And it was just completely foreign to me and felt chaotic. And I felt like my personality was to some extent being evaluated. You know, the markers of success in a psychology program typically are very ambiguous. Mm-hmm. In the business school I went to, if you passed the test and you got 92%, you got an A. I mean, that, and it didn't matter what your personality was. And in in, when I took accounting, it didn't matter what, what, how I felt about anything. Mm-hmm. At Antioch... It was very clear and... Concrete. Yeah, concrete. But at Antioch, everything had to do with how I felt about things and everything had to do about my personal growth as a human being. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there was writing and, of course, there was learning theory and there even was some tests. But... It was so all-encompassing, and so it, it was. It was pretty anxiety-provoking for me, actually, when I was in my when I was in my twenties. I subsequently, years later, went back for my doctorate. And being older, and having been in the field, and having done a lot of personal work, and just feeling older and more confident in my doctorate, I felt much more relaxed, and uh, it was a much more enjoyable process. My master's was enjoyable, but my doctorate was really enjoyable, I guess Mm -hmm. I should say. Antioch sometimes gets this reputation for being really, really new agey and really 
you know, floppy and, <laughs> and purple and frilly and un, unironed. I'm using lots of metaphors. Um, and I just described a lot of that in, in my description. But as a professor at Antioch, I can tell you that that's, that's half of the experience. The other half is just straight up learning. I, for instance, quiz my students. I want to make sure that they graduate having known a, a pretty good number of things that they need to know. And so it is skill-based. It is evidence-based in terms of the, the sort of things that, that we teach. So we really, at Antioch, as a professor, I can say we have one foot in the floppy, unironed, purple <laughs> world and yeah. one foot firmly in the concrete academic yeah. world as well. So it's very balanced. I, I, like. We try to strike a balance, yeah. yeah, because I think that that's the best model to produce competent therapists. They have yeah. to feel safe and they have to grow personally. Yeah, well-rounded. It sounds like you need to be really solid. and Yeah, and you have to learn concrete things. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to be a competent professional. Yeah, absolutely. So which environment did you enjoy more? The UW or the, or the yeah. floppy world? Yeah. Um, uh, the floppy world, I enjoy so much more. I mean, <laughs> I mean, UW was a long time ago, so it's hard for me to remember precisely what it was like. I mean, I guess I barely remember school. I remember more of the social life at, in college than the, than the school, whereas my master's and my doctorate, I, I remember a lot of moments in school, mm. very memorable moments. So at UW, I remember sitting in class and just being bored out of my mind. <laughs> Although, actually, my last quarter, my last couple quarters, I had saved up all of my electives to take whatever I wanted. So I didn't have to take anything required. Mm. And I took all music courses. So I took a composition course where it was me and four or five other students writing music and, and, and comparing our music. And the professor would tear us apart, particularly me, <laughs> because I was the only non- classical writer and the uh -huh. and and there was one jazz at UW they're so old school if you're jazz they look down on jazz because jazz is like the new kid in town mm -hmm. so I'm coming in with my folk songs and my rock songs and they're they're really looking down on me the other <laughs> students liked it but but the yeah. professor was just like this is ridiculous and oh, but you goodness. know and I took a bunch of other courses like computer music theory and all these other courses. And I just, I just loved it. How'd I get on this topic? Mm -hmm. So I remember that. <laughs> I remember those courses, you know? Yeah. But the business courses and the, the other courses I don't remember so well. But so, yeah, I highly recommend if you go into the field of psychology and counseling that you pick a somewhat floppy school. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's where I'm headed, I hope. <laughs> Would you have done anything differently would you have wished that your professors were teaching along a different line or is there anything that you didn't enjoy that you still wish like today that's just kind of sour in school yeah through your education and through your um training yeah to become a therapist well i didn't do much research regarding where to go to school I i'm really glad i went to antioch mm -hmm. but what if antioch was terrible. Mm -hmm. So I, I would have just persevered, you know, I would have just pushed through. I feel like for the average person, um, and I think I'm average in this way, 
the information is hard to get for whatever reason. You know, if, if, if you want to buy a car, there's car lots. All You just drive down the street. Oh, it's there's endless, a- right? Yeah. There's so much to choose from. Yeah. You could type in, I want to buy a car, and there'll be hundreds of guides. And, yeah. But, like, if I want to be – I want a career in psychology, it's really hard for the average person to figure out what to do. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of people end up um, falling into a graduate program. So this isn't really a regret on my end. I guess I'm just bringing up something that people should hear. <laughs> because some people end up coming to Antioch having been at another graduate program and hated it for one reason or another. They, they liked it too in some ways, but they mm-hmm. also disliked it for some, way, for some reasons. And then, and then they come to Antioch and they say they, they say they wish they would have done more shopping and more asking around. Mm-hmm. But... They shouldn't have to do that actively. That information should be readily available, mm-hmm. but for mm-hmm. whatever reason it isn't. But what's something that I regret? In my master's program, I regret being so anxious. Mm-hmm. You know, I was 25, 24, and I was too much in my head and didn't let go. So that must have taken some of your focus away from the education Absolutely, process. yeah. And that's something that I spend a good amount of time with my students is to lower their anxiety. Mm-hmm. I, I frequently tell them, if you're anxious, that's my fault as a professor. That if you're anxious, tell me and, and I'll do whatever I need to do to make you not anxious because mm-hmm. you don't have anything to worry about. There's, there's nothing you can do within the normal range of impulses that would ruin your experience as a student. Yeah. You're not going to accidentally reveal that you're a terrible person. That's just, you know, you're going <laughs> to reveal you're a, you're a normal human being with a range of, of impulses and thoughts yeah. and feelings, yeah. which is normal and that's okay. So I regret not allowing myself to be myself. I mean, I was sometimes, but overall I was really... In my master's program, I was really just trying to hold on. I mean, just as a for instance, in my first quarter of my master's, again, I'm 24 years old, and I come from this business school, and I've never been close to a therapist. I don't know any therapists. I I don't come from that world. Mm -hmm. The first quarter, we talked about empathy. I'd never heard of it before. I mean, I might have heard the word, Mm. but the concept was completely foreign to Uh, me. So, and I remember everyone else in in our, you know, our five person class or six or seven person class, (laughs) they knew exactly, I mean, they all knew what empathy was like. It was just in the water that they grew up in or something. And I'm like, what's empathy? So that's how lost I was. And so right from the start, I realized man, I am lost. <laughs> and, and part of me, you know, and, and I should have said, you know what, I'm lost. I, I, yeah. I, you guys have a lot more experience than I do. You're 40 years old. You've been thinking about becoming a therapist for 20 of those years. I just decided, uh, you know, probably like six months prior. So, <laughs> you know, and I should have just admitted it. But instead, I, I went underground and tried to hide because I felt like it shouldn't be seen. But mm-hmm. now as a professor, I looking back at that, I think that's ridiculous. Well, maybe in the heat of the moment, yeah, being in a professional, you know, going into a professional world, that might have been really kind of scary to admit, too, that you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. So, But you're a student. That's, yeah. I mean, that's what that's I tell students. <laughs> there's this weird expectation that students feel like they're supposed to know everything prior to learning it. Hmm. It's really weird. I mean, they get into mas- they get into the masters or the doctoral program, and they feel bad for not knowing something. Huh. That how does that make any sense? You're in school, yeah. 
by definition, you don't know things. Revel in that. Revel in the fact you don't know. Yeah. And require me to teach you that. Yeah. If you knew everything prior to coming in, then you wouldn't be here. <laughs> and so, so it's this weird thing that I think it's also that by the time you get into master's and doctoral programs, these are the individuals that have been doing very well in school throughout their entire lives, mm-hmm. throughout their entire life. And so I think they've just always, they've, they're used to being the top of the class. They're used to knowing sure. everything. Yeah. And, and then they get lumped in with a bunch of other people like that. And they suddenly, for the first time in their life, feel average. Mm. <laughs> and that isn't comfortable to them. And one question I had for you later, too, was like, how do you address that in a social setting when you say I'm a therapist? Just do people react differently to you? I'm sure they do. Like, oh, he's secretly evaluating me or something. At parties, I sometimes say I work at Microsoft because, <laughs> because no one wants to know anything about my job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so 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 sometimes I say that because of what you're saying. Yeah, to avoid uh, that, like, yeah. distancing. Yeah, or, mm-hmm. or the, some people judge, too. They'll, sure. they'll, they'll say, oh, you're one of those people. Or, I mean, my main job is I'm a professor. So, so if I say that, they say, oh, those who can't do teach, right? They'll say stuff, uh. like, <laughs> they'll say stuff like that. Or, or they'll think some things that are in my head that might not be, or I don't know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people think, oh, do you analyze people all the time? Are you analyzing me? Hmm. I think it's changed though over the, my 18 years. Yeah, I think in the, in the 90s and you know back toward the 90s people were more likely to have those negative reactions to me when i said what i did but i think more late, lately people are more they they have a better understanding of what i do mm-hmm. that i'm not analyzing everybody all the time yeah. and that i'm not to be feared i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so my next question which was to contradict that what's most challenging is what's most rewarding yeah. That comes what what comes out of a session that just feels like you're on the top of the moon. Yeah. There's so many things. I mean, in general, it's when things are are going well, but one kind of situation specific to to that would be I do a lot of couples work and family work. Mm-hmm. It's one thing when a client says to me, "I really like working with you." You know, I really like talking with you and that that's nice mm-hmm. but it's another thing when and i might cry just thinking about it but when two people who desperately want to connect and have been not connecting mm-hmm. and have been hurt by each other and have been angry at each other and have been having their relationship get to the point where they don't even want to be with each other anymore to be witness to that doing a 180 and now they're open to each other (laughs) and they love each other and they might even hug in session and you just feel that energy you know Mm. and they see each other and they understand each other you know along the lines of compassionate communication you know they they're utilizing that kind of voice to see that change and to see how happy they are and to see that now we're heading in another direction and I don't even have to do anything, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they're just doing it in the session. And to be witness to that is, is very gratifying. Do you ever encounter clients um, that might come to you with a very unique issue that maybe you're not educated in that maybe isn't, you know, the knowledge around what they're going through isn't 
available or something. I'm guessing depression is a very general condition that people have, but something that might be very rare or maybe they don't even know that they are going through something difficult or, and you know, you're trying to figure out like, what is this person going through? And maybe you're asking your general questions and, uh, nothing is like fitting into these boxes and they're kind of just floating around and you don't know how to treat them. What do you do? I feel that way a majority of the time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) and I think I realized this early on that it's hard to put people into boxes, Mm -hmm. even though some people want to, I suppose. We try. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty much every client I work with. It's, it's like that, but I like that. I I like that. It's, a mystery and it's squishy and mm-hmm. each person is unique and each condition is unique. Each, each expression of depression is unique. Yeah. Um, so I like that. Yeah. But it can be hard sometimes because as I learn things and gain more experience, I look back on things I was doing even five years ago and think I didn't know what I was doing there. <laughs> uh, there are things, you know, at the time I had say 10 years of experience or some 12 years experience I thought I had you know basically seen the main categories Mm -hmm. and basically knew at least where to look if I needed to know something Mm -hmm. and now I look back and I think I I I was a little overconfident which makes you wonder in another five years I'm going to look back at me now and think (laughs) (laughs) boy you really didn't know what you were doing Mm -hmm. It's a vast field and people are infinitely complex. Yeah. I'm continually baffled by things. That's something that actually really attracts me to mm. interacting with other human beings is, yeah, we're all completely unique and, uh, you know, none of our wires are never the same. And um, it's just a blank canvas that we kind of draw on together. And that's so interesting because you never get bored, I'm guessing, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. always new and interesting. And as people, we grow Mm -hmm. so much that it's never, there's never a dull moment. (laughs) Yeah, there isn't. I can imagine if you worked with one particular population with one particular issue, it Mm -hmm. might get a little mundane, but, um, but yeah, I'm never bored with my clients and I've been doing this work for a long time, you know, I thought I would have only lasted when I first started, I said, well, I'll do it for 10 years and then I'll do something else. Because I'm sure after 10 years, I'll be bored out of my <laughs> mind. <laughs> um, but I wasn't. Yeah. And I remember as the 10-year mark approached, I said, I don't think I'm bored of this yet. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I, I had a whole, uh, I had whole areas that I had yet to even know about to look into. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's actually one of the things about doing podcasting that is interesting too in that you know for instance this compassionate communication field is something i've i haven't heard about before so it's like oh maybe i should look into that you know it's like and and this model of how to get families to be inspired to do it by going to a camp that's all about compassionate communication but let me ask you a couple questions that just occurred to me um you mentioned that you're you're homeschooled Mm -hmm. and you were homeschooled from when to when your whole life my whole life yeah i've never gone to a traditional school at all yeah and you do you live in a small town big town no we're um we're in chicago and we're in the north side of chicago we're not in downtown um 
but we're in the city. And I've been in Chicago, and I remember someone saying that, is it the south side or the north side that's sort of sketchy? That's the south side, yeah. Um, that is more... Gangs and... Yeah, yeah. So there is kind of a negative um, association around the south side usually in Chicago. And I mean, I I don't mind the south side. I feel comfortable, but it's when it gets dark, I think, that people, you know, start to get suspicious too and just it doesn't feel safe anymore but where we are we're north we're about two miles north of uh, downtown and the community that we're in is actually um, I haven't seen it very uh, in many places um, other than where we are because it's a very tight-knit community of neighbors Um, we're right by the river and this gentleman has kind of created this wonderfully sweet connected community called the riverbank neighbors and we get together for solstices and you know so it's been a very enriching motivating supportive community to grow up in in the city are there other homeschool kids in your neighborhood in chicago there is in our neighborhood yeah there have been families that have moved in fairly close to where we are but in illinois the the laws around homeschooling are looser. So every home that homeschools is considered a private school. We don't have to submit tests every year or anything like that. Um, It's put on the parents to teach the children in in a way that they feel they're getting everything that they need. And um, we have a couple homeschooling communities in which um, other teachers and parents will offer classes and recently, students too will, you know, teach classes, and because um, we're all students and we're all teachers, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll get together in a, you know, a building and offer classes, um, all kinds of classes, math, yoga, you know, it goes the whole spectrum. So mm-hmm. yeah, there are things like that. There's a lot of acting. I've done a lot of acting in my middle school and high school years. Really? So. so- you're involved with other people in the homeschool yeah. community. Yeah, it's very connected. Oh, I see. So it's not just isolated in your home. Not at all, no. So there'll be like co-ops or something yeah. where mm-hmm. the older kids might teach a math class to the younger kids. Because in my head, I think homeschool, you don't interact with other homeschool right. kids. And I think that's how it started was, you know, one thing people think about when they think homeschooling is religious families. Religious families would keep their children and teach their children in their home so that they knew exactly what they were learning and knew exactly what was going into their lives. And I think that's kind of where it started. But then people started to see the value in teaching your children at home and having a strong connection with their education and their learning. And learning for me has always been enjoyable and it's always been fun Mm. because I've had the freedom to create my own curriculum and follow what interests me and I can excel in certain fields and hold back in certain fields that I don't feel super inspired in. So Mm -hmm. I'm really like on my own track and I can um, like customize what I'm learning. And so learning in school doesn't start and stop for me. Like Mm. there aren't hours in which I, you know, do my homework and everything like that. Mm. So like summer break, people have been asking me about graduation and technically I'm, you know, I've graduated this year and I'm doing a gap year, but I'm still learning. It's like school hasn't stopped for me. Hmm. It's kind of just I take it wherever I go. <laughs> yeah, it's a better philosophy to have about learning, right? It's like, oh, well, I'm not in school, so I'm not learning anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you're open to learning 
all the time. Mm-hmm. So your mom's in charge of your school? Cooperatively, yeah. So we work together and um, we've worked with other parents and other teachers. And I've learned a lot from my dad in the uh, field of like construction. My dad's a carpenter and um, he has his own business. So I had my own tool belt and toolbox, you know, as soon as I could carry one and hold one. So, well, he must've liked that. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your parents must, must be very mature, nice people because it's hard. I think for some parents to manage the emotions that go into the frustration Mm. when teaching children and trying to corral them. You know, one, one of the nice things about, the public school system or even the private school system is that mm-hmm. the parents don't have to deal with their kids for a, right. a, a set amount of time. So so your parents must be pretty patient um, people is, is just a guess. I would say so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's been my experience with them. I'm super grateful for that for sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's not for everyone. Homeschooling really isn't for everybody. And yeah. the selective few that do have that, that motivation to have a school and a learning uh, environment in their home and have the energy for that and also know when to say, hey, I need some personal time. I need some personal space. And that's where NVC has become it, become really handy in our family is when my mom is just overwhelmed and overworked and she can express that to us and we don't feel like neglected or, you know, like, oh, she's she's not spending time with us. What are we doing wrong? Yeah. It's um, you know, it's just her needing her her own time and her own space, and so yeah, that's been very helpful. So, who do you think is not a good candidate for homeschooling? What's what sort of person? Well, I think if you have a career in which, as a parent, you have a career outside the home, you know, you're working in an office or you're traveling or something, and it's difficult to spend right. time at home then having that environment where you know your child is being cared for and taught and fed like a public school or private school, that can be really reassuring to you as the parent. If you have two working parents or if you're a single parent, right. it can be a lot of a lot of stress, I'm sure. Right. Does your mom work? No, she's a stay-at-home mom. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess it didn't occur to me. I guess if you had two working parents in offices mm-hmm. in the city, it would be Especially impossible. Especially young, having young kids, too. Yeah, they can't at home alone and right. a nanny is, you know, extra work and right. making sure that they're being taught what you want them to learn. I think it's just simpler and creates more ease in your life as a parent to have your child in a, a community with friends and supporters right. and teachers and, you know, they're interacting. Evolutionarily, when we were tribal back in the day, we did not have massive schools, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't even yeah. have schools, right? Right children learned from their parents and they learned from their neighbors. They were with their parents and their neighbors and their siblings. Whereas today's system, how often do siblings even see each other? How often do children see their parents Monday through Friday? Yeah. Um, and they're in an environment that's that's very foreign to our, to our history in that they're in a school with 1,500 people that and and of the vast majority of them they don't know or at least they don't know well and you can imagine that might create anxiety and some some of the difficulties mm-hmm. that we see in teenage life whereas if you're at home and you're you're bonded with your parents and you feel loved and cared for and um, you respect your parents maybe in a different way that 
seemingly would lead to better adjustment. And I mean, you certainly seem mm-hmm. extremely mature and, and well-spoken and, <laughs> and, um, balanced. So you're well cooked, you know, your mom, <laughs> your mom left you in the oven for the allotted amount of time. And, and so it makes me wonder if we should all be homeschooling, uh, <laughs> instead. But I, I wonder what, what are the downsides to, to, to being homeschooled? Mm. Yeah. I've thought of that too. Like, um, you know, the, I think there are benefits in both areas, both homeschooling, unschooling, and being in a public school or private school. Did you say unschooling? Unschooling, What's yeah. What's unschooling? Um, it's not having fixed times in which you learn. So homeschooling is much more textbook oriented. It's like having a classroom, right. a school classroom. Yeah, there's like workbooks and there's yeah. quizzes along the way. And- yeah. So we've done both, but especially in my younger years, we were unschooling and um, we would learn through play, very uh, Waldorf-like schooling. Hmm. So I guess the downsides are, um, hmm, I guess, well, there have been points in my schooling, you know, education where I do wish like I had the resources that a school would have, like a lab or, you know, something like that, where uh, the resources and materials are readily available and and to have a professor that is very educated in that subject, whereas sometimes my mom and I will be learning together. You know, it's she's yeah. she doesn't know every single subject, you yeah. know, front to back. So, totally. yeah, I guess there have been times where, like, I've been so interested in something that I want to go farther, you know, into that world, like biology. That's hard to bring home. Mm. But we've made do, you know, and uh, there are other resources, there are other families. Well, I'm guessing with the internet now, yeah. <laughs> with with YouTube, yeah, if you wanted yeah. to learn, I mean, I I personally would love to be a kid in today's world. The, the access to information, you know, if you just wanted to learn like about biology or something. I mean, mm-hmm. I just saw a video yesterday, yesterday about the immune system. It, it mm-hmm. was like this really well-made video like a professional very professional sort of sort of deal and after six minutes i it was totally blew my mind (laughs) the immune system is bizarre and complex and um but i feel like i understand it way better now so i'm sure you supplement in that way so so you're saying that's a downside but you know one of the main downsides that people identify is the social aspects right because (laughs) high school is very social naturally sure the football games and the proms and the yeah the in-between class times and the rallies and that sort of thing um yeah is that a downside to being homeschooled i don't think so not for me and i've been very lucky in my community and living in the city too there are a lot of other families doing what we're doing and a lot of families that have the same philosophy so we did a homeschool girl scout troop when i was starting at like 7 to 12 or something like okay. that. And so I had this very close-knit group of friends that I grew up with and I'm still friends with. And I think my experience has been I've met a lot of very mature young people mm. through homeschooling um, who are very solid in their beliefs and are also comfortable like saying, I don't know that, you know, can you teach it to me when asked a question instead of feeling pressured and tested? Yeah, it's interesting because I just think about the way that high schoolers are typically. <laughs> sure, the stereotype. In a stereotype. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, I 
you know, counsel a lot of teenagers. So, you know, they run the gamut, but, but there's, you know, there's this general stance of a high schooler where you're, it's like, Oh, I gotta go to school and (laughs) gotta deal with the teacher. And like, Oh, they gave me this assignment. I gotta get this assignment done. And, Oh my God, homework. And, uh, you know, like it's, it, Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem pleasurable. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Like they're not benefiting from that. Yeah. And, you, it seems like um, the model might produce that because you mm. have teachers that don't listen to the student in terms of what do you want, right? It's that it, this is the curriculum. Sit down and shut up and do your work. I mean, there are wonderful teachers, but mm-hmm, but that's mm-hmm. the model that yeah. that they follow, and and they're forced to do that model by the system. I mean, that you mm-hmm. know, if a teacher wants to go off the grid. Uh, they will quickly be put back on the grid. And then I just think about the anxiety that's produced by being exposed to all these people and trying to fit in with everybody. And then Mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, the worries of people talking about you. And and I'm guessing when you're in a smaller, tight-knit community, you have the opportunity to really build relationships with people and trust with people in a way that you could never do in with a thousand people right mm-hmm. so yeah that's been part of it is it, it is a you know it's a small community but it's a very established community and some staples in my like social life we could say have been you know girl scouts starting from a young age that was so fun and i think we were more like boy scouts we did a lot of camping together and you know a lot of adventures and we went to niagara falls and that was super fun So, you know, we go through a lot together and we get so close so fast because there was like, there was me and four other girls. We were called the Fab Five. And, um, you know, I'm still very close with a couple of them today. And then theater was just a huge staple in my, in my life as well. We would become family, you know, creating this story together. And, and we were all homeschoolers and around the same age and, Actually, last year, one of my very first directors asked me to go on a road trip with her and her four kids and be their on-road nanny. And so we came through Seattle and we stayed around here, actually. So, you know, those connections that are made, they're solid. And mm-hmm. But our communities, our homeschooling communities, we we do things like dances and classes and we'll get together. and um, You'll have dances? Yeah, yeah, there have been, you know, some really fun moms who decide we should have a dance (laughs) and uh, (laughs) we'll get together. And it's not a crazy kind of dance. It's, you know, it's just a whole bunch of friends kind of goofing off and playing and um, How, how many kids. Oh, at a dance like that. I think about 25 or 30 okay. would show up. Yeah, yeah. it fluctuates. Yeah. But the thing is, I know everyone there. I know every single person, and I feel comfortable with everybody there. And right. so that's been really wonderful. I'm not a crowd person either. So oh. I really enjoy like intimate connections, like really strong connections. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, worked for me in that aspect. I mean, I know some kids who have been homeschooled, and I can tell you that your homeschool community is very different from the ones that I've seen. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the people that you guys are involved with have a system that is pretty robust. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of kids who get homeschooled, they don't have an organization like that among the parents. Mm-hmm. 
it's interesting to hear you talk about it because if you just talked about your life, you know, it's like it's a little bit Laura Ingalls on the prairie. <laughs> it's a little bit like futuristic, you know. <laughs> but it but it definitely doesn't I wouldn't think Chicago, do you know what uh, I mean? <laughs> sure. Yeah. A massive city with millions of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I also don't I don't think of Chicago as being particularly progressive, but maybe maybe it is. It's, yeah. So so that's another like that would be like what city is this from? They'd say yeah. like San Francisco or something yeah, or Berkeley, sure. not, you know, Chicago. So it's it's mm-hmm. great to hear. I I I wonder if things are headed in that direction and uh, so I feel like things are not headed in that direction though. Mm. But I feel like they should be. I, I at the very least I would like it if schools were smaller. I'm actually a a, a, a small public school nearby hires me to do work for them and a lot of the kids act kind of the way you do in the direction that, that you are because of the smaller community and and it the plus also the school is six through 12 so you are with the same teachers and the same people throughout mm-hmm. that time and so i just think the model of of 2000 kids in a school is is just not conducive to personal development. I would think it's too overwhelming to actually be able to focus on right. individual connections. Right. People are about people. Yeah. And uh, we're not, you know, numbers. And, and when we get treated like that, then, you know, you have an increase in bad things happening. And there's a lot of bad things happening in high school right now. Mm. Well, kudos to your mom and your dad and all the people in your community who has created and raised uh, a good person. So, <laughs> oh, thanks. Okay, I have two key questions. Um, I'll go with this one first. Uh, what do you do when um, you've established a connection with your client and you find out that they're unable to afford the cost of therapy? What what does that do to the relationship? That they can't afford it. Yeah. And maybe you feel like you just really want to help and but professionally it's not to your advantage. Right. What do you do? Right, cuz it's a job we have to earn a living. Yeah. Well, there's two things. One is is sometimes unfortunately the relationship has to end and we have to refer them somewhere that can accommodate them cuz there are mm-hmm. places that can accommodate people that don't have insurance or the money to pay for mental health uh, therapy. But therapists ethically are supposed to do some advocacy which might involve some pro bono services. So um, any therapist who cares about the community will will take on some some free, Mm -hmm. some clients who don't pay for therapy or at least reduce the fee quite a bit. Therapists are very nice, bleeding heart people. Mm -hmm. So it's not hard to convince them to to do pro bono work. <laughs> sure, yeah, of course. All right, and probably the one that like has boiled in me the most is um, when you have a client or even a close friend that you see is struggling and um, your what you're doing doesn't seem to be moving them along enough, and um, you know you're not seeing the benefit very quickly um, and maybe they're just a very giving person and it's difficult to plug that back in and like care for themselves and be able to Mm. um, take care of themselves. Um, I mean, does that, how do you address that kind of thing? It's happened with me like personally with friends and stuff. So you have a friend who isn't taking care of themselves and you're worried about them. 
and you yeah. wonder what you could do to maybe help them take care of themselves. Yeah. And yeah. these this person specifically, I won't name names, but is very, very able to give and very able to help other people. Yeah. And they're just stuck in their own like self-care program. So right. trying to reassure them and say, hey, you matter too. You need to take care of yourself. You need some, some self-time and wanting them to be inspired and motivated to do that and then not seeing it happen. I feel discouraged. I feel kind of sad and also like helpless. Like, oh my gosh, what can I do? Because mm -hmm. I know this is your thing and I know this is what you need to figure out for yourself. Yeah. And it's like an inner struggle within me. Like I know I can't just shake you and make the parts fit together again. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. What do you do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've basically answered the question. You know, you recognize the feelings and you accept them that you are helpless, mm -hmm. that it is sad and it is frustrating. You know, it's, it's a tough question to answer because I don't know the person you're talking about. But in general, uh, yeah, the first step is just accept that you might not be able to do anything about it. The, the other thing is, is if you are going to do something about it, it's probably going to take time. And the best thing you can do for that person is be a good friend and just be there for them mm -hmm. um, when, they're, when they're suffering. But some other things you can do is model. So you can, when you have a similar thing, you deal with it in one way and then show them how you like to do it and maybe they can benefit from that. Another one is just to tell them what is on your mind. Mm -hmm. Just be like, you know what, I'm really, yeah. I'm really scared for you. I, f I feel... I feel bad for you sometimes because I feel like you deserve to be taken care of and and you're you're not you're not doing that for yourself for whatever reason. But often when people do that it doesn't usually change things. You know, I work with people for years on just that issue and they really want to change. <laughs> so, we have to lower our expectations in terms of yeah. what's even possible. It's possible she could turn it around tomorrow, but if it's particularly stubborn, it, it might be there a long time, even if she wants to change it. Sure. So sometimes we just have to accept that we all have our issues. And what do you think about advice? I've always had a queasy like uh, feeling about advice and not giving it because it's like an artificial seed mm -hmm. to me. But I think I think a lot of people could benefit from it in a very stuck gray area. Absolutely. Advice has a bad reputation, and I think, I don't know where that came from. If I was doing something wrong and someone gave me advice and it was great and I was open to it, I'd love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if, I, if you see I'm doing something wrong, by all, don't wait for me to Socratically come upon the answer. Like, just tell me what to do. <laughs> Having said that, the reason why advice got a bad uh, reputation is because it would be forced on people. Right. Yeah. And it would have a judgment and a criticism in there. Right. You should be doing this. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with you? Now, if it's that, then obviously that doesn't usually go over very well. Right. But if it's compassionately delivered or if the person's and or if the person's open to hearing something, then by all means, you know, offer you're not telling mm -hmm. them they're a terrible person. You're not telling them that no. they're stupid. You're not you're not saying this is the only way. You're not telling him you know 100% of everything and they know nothing. You're just saying, you know what, here, I'm just going to throw it out there. As this, a suggestion. Just a suggestion. Yeah. How about this? You know, maybe this will work. There's nothing wrong with that. Because then they have more choice around accepting that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any last questions, Monica? I think that's it. Any final reflections on uh, 
uh, our talk here. Mm. And I'm just really grateful to have met you. And this has really been pretty awesome for me. And I'm excited to keep going and looking into bringing compassionate communication into therapy and see where that takes me because it's it's a pretty important part of my life and to be able to share that with other people too is really pretty important to me because I've seen the benefit in my family and other families and I want to be able to spread that as wide as possible and Mm -hmm. I'm just one kid so you know how much can I actually do but Mm -hmm. I'm going to take it where I can. (laughs) Well I think you could be a therapist now um, because, <laughs> because of all the education your mom has given you around maturity and awareness and how to communicate. I would also consider, if I was in your shoes, how you can fold in your homeschooling experience and how you might be able to propagate that model of homeschooling. Hmm. And maybe it already is a model that's being propagated. <laughs> I don't know. But but if you could somehow help other families with their homeschooling or even pro- you know promote homeschooling for certain uh, families and tell and show them look there's 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 a there's a very well-rounded robust model that you can mm-hmm. have that um will address any of the concerns you have about homeschooling because it sounds like you had a lot of socializing growing yeah. up yeah yeah which is one of the main criticisms of homeschooling. Yeah, and that's is. the stereotype. You have this like pasty mm-hmm. kid who never leaves the house <laughs> and doesn't know how to communicate with anybody. But, yeah. the, but that to me has always been ridiculous because, again, prior to, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago, like everyone just grew up in their villages and they didn't have big public schools and somehow they socialized, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so, so there's that. How did you discover the podcast? I'm curious. I looked up psychology on like the Apple podcast app Mm -hmm. and yours was one of the first ones that came up and I was like psychology and Seattle two things that I love a lot so (laughs) downloaded it and was like oh my gosh how cool is this so yeah and I think that was a couple months ago and I adore podcasts of all kinds and Mm -hmm. and this one was just like this really resonates with me so Mm -hmm. yeah I was excited to contact you and be able to meet you in person, too. Cool. It's been quite a trip. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us out there for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Thanks for joining me, Monica. Thank you. Thank you.